Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I'm your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And for today's episode, we are going way back in the well. In fact, a little trivia note, this is the oldest movie I have ever done on Staff Picks. And I'm excited because I'm pulling out a horror movie, and I have not recorded a horror episode in a while. So this is like settling into an old, comfortable pair of shoes. And the, uh, the um, movie that I am talking about is the 1968 classic Rosemary's Baby, starring uh, Mia Farrow and some other people. We'll mention them when we get to them. But this is a old devil horror movie that I have long loved. And I have a host here, uh, Fiona, she's been on the show before, but I gave her basically carte blanche. I said, give me a couple horror movies, I want to get you back on the show. And she says, well, for personal reasons, let's do Rosemary's Baby. And I said, why? And she explained it. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing, we have to do this on the show. So, this, it's, uh, here we go, the oldest horror movie, or the oldest movie, period, I've done on Staff Picks. But again, one that I think very highly of, I have always loved. I know it won some Oscars, or it was nominated for some. I'm sure she can explain this better than me. This was a very highly regarded movie, but it's not one you hear that much about these days. So I just want to give it a little more love, a little maybe perhaps younger audience. And it is especially hardcore for an older horror movie. If you've never seen it before, you will enjoy it. So... My guest today, uh, yeah, she's been on the show before. She's a horror author. She's been on twice before. This is her third appearance. She has a very uh, strange background, and I love getting her on the show because she always brings a lot to her episodes. Welcome back, Fiona Carter. Hey, Mario. Always happy to be here. Now, I know, sorry, I, I know I'm doing an injustice by giving your real name. Please let people know your pen name that most of your writing fans would know you as. Thank you. I write horror and sci-fi under Fiona J.R. Ticcinell, uh, but I am married to Matt Carter, and sometimes we write together, and that's probably how a lot of your listeners also know me. Yes, Matt and Fiona are two of my favorite hosts to have on. I've had Matt on three times, now I've had Fiona on three times, so you are indeed the power couple of staff picks, so I'm just letting you know there's a lot of expectations for you this time, Fiona. Oh, I know. I, I've been tearing my hair out about it. <laughs> Hopefully not as much as Mia Farrow teared her out, her hair out, so there was none left, basically. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did base my haircut on her originally. You know, when haircuts were still a thing, it looked like hers. Now it's more of like a Luke Skywalker thing going on. Yeah, for my listeners, she's not kidding. She really had the Mia Farrow pixie haircut for many years. You don't have that anymore. It's just because it's been growing out. I'll get it again. Okay, well, hopefully there's a good uh, devil worship storyline in there somewhere to make your hair get short again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Fiona always comes on for horror movies. We did uh, Unfriended, and we did Ginger Snaps. And I know you have a background in horror literature, young author literature, and feminist literature. Why don't you remind people what you're known for and what you write these days? Okay, well, I did Out of the Pocket. Uh, that was featured by Feminist Book of the Month. Uh, that was... It started out as a Peter Pan parody, actually, but it really became a parody of paranormal romance, but a, a serious parody, a satire about some of the really toxic messages in so-called romantic fiction. Uh, right now, I'm working on a neo-gothic ghost story with Matt. We're calling Hollywood Gothic. Um, I have been working on a series called Escape Velocity, Feminist Folk Tales from Beyond the Stars, 
uh, that had um, acid test of Naya Mills and the chrysidid gaze, which were retellings of Rumpelstiltskin and the legend of Medusa in just a little novella um, space opera style. So that was fun. I'm keeping that uh, series open to add things to over time. But right now working on ghost stories with Matt, which has been really fun. Yeah, Fiona is one of my favorite guests because she comes on here and she adds a lot of class to these episodes. That She's very well-read, very literate, and very uh, feminist and classy. You have always come on very well-prepared and bring lots of good arguments to the show. So it is a constant struggle of her trying to class my show up and me trying to drag it right down to the ground. So it's always a fun little dance with you, Fiona. Oh, well, I enjoy it as well. <laughs> so why don't you tell people the back history on why you suggested we do Rosemary's Baby on Staff Picks? Because I still think this is hilarious. Okay. When Matt and I started trying to have children, one of our first thoughts, not kidding, we're, we're planning our whole future, children and everything. One of our first thoughts was, wouldn't it be cool to do a Staff Picks episode of Rosemary's Baby while I'm pregnant? <laughs> That didn't end up happening. Lots of long medical story. Hopefully we'll have kids sometime not too far in the future. Wasn't able to happen on the schedule we expected, but still just the anticipation of going through that process makes me think about Rosemary's baby a lot. And I like to <laughs> lean into the, the gallows humor and using horror as a coping mechanism because nothing in real life can compare with what your imagination can do. And of course, unfortunately, a lot of the time it can, but it's comforting to imagine that it can't. <laughs> and I, I find horror very comforting at difficult times for some reason. Because nothing quite says the miracle of life, like a movie where a woman gives birth to the devil, including cl uh, claws and horns and all. Cause that's what you're going to be worrying about. Not, literally that but you're going to worry about every possible bad thing that could be happening and if you're watching rosemary's baby you can probably assume it's going to be a little bit better than that <laughs> yes well, i i love that logic she threw that out oh I, we're going to be pregnant so i'd like to do rosemary's baby which is the worst possible movie about pregnancy ever in fact to the point that i'm glad you it is terrifying <laughs> have you have you ever read the book i'm assuming there's no way you've not read this book right I actually have not. It's like next on my list. I ordered it when I was researching this this podcast, and I actually found out it was written by the same guy who wrote the novel that The Stepford Wives is based on. Mm -hmm. So I went and ordered both of those, and I cannot wait to actually read them. But as I understand it, um, the movie version of Rosemary's Baby is pretty much a word-for-word -word adaptation. Yeah, it's it's word for word almost. It's very well done, although the book is even grosser than the movie. There's way really? more content on what it feels like to have horns and claws scraping your insides at all times. Oh, that's the kind of thing you can do more of in a book. <laughs> that makes total sense. Yes, you will be inspired. It'll be it'll bring back bring a lot of joy joy feelings to you and Matt as you read the horrors <laughs> of Rosemary. But I will say, like, I, I don't read a whole lot these days just because I'm too busy writing stuff. But I went through a phase in the early 2000s when I was reading every famous horror book ever written. And I read Rosemary's Baby. And for people who don't know, it's by an author named Ira Levin, who I don't know his other works. You may know his other works better than I do. Is that Do you know his other stuff besides The Stepford Wives? Only those two titles. 
Okay. I've heard a lot of people say he has a lot of good books. I just don't personally know them, but he's very highly regarded. And I remember reading this book right before my own wife was pregnant with our daughter in 1999. And I read it and I'm like, you know, Diana, you like horror books. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, don't read Rosemary's Baby. Do not. When you're pregnant, <laughs> do not read this book. This is the last book you want to read ever. So, and I think she went out and read it just out of spite. But that is my warning to all pregnant women. This is a horrible, horrible book that will give you nightmares right before you're pregnant. It, it really will. And unless you're like me and like, you know, taunting yourself with that in order to feel better when you say it probably won't be that. Yeah, I'd, I'd avoid it. That's totally a personal thing which way you're going to go on that <laughs> so are you the type of person who right before you fly you read a bunch of like plane crash websites and stuff i don't do that i don't like to go to um too much real life stuff on all the horrible things that could go wrong with something i've already decided i'm going to do anyway uh -huh. but the fiction helps okay so the devil part you're you're fine with that oh yeah i'm i'm <laughs> I'm a lapsed Wiccan. I'm not scared of Satan. I am scared of people. <laughs> okay, well, that that does bring me into another topic. Like, I love Rosemary's Baby, and I'm hoping a lot of my listeners know this movie already. So we're going to kind of not going to give it the nitty gritty on every little detail. You probably, probably know it. But my daughter, Vanessa, does not like this movie. She will not watch it. And my wife, Diana, does not like this movie either. And so I'm in a minority in this house because I am very fond of this movie. So, Fiona, I will leave it to you here. How do I convince the people I love that they should love Rosemary's Baby more? Well, it depends on why they don't love it. And I can totally understand if you just find this movie unenjoyably uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's the right reason to not like this movie. That's not the movie's fault. That's what it's supposed to be. But that's just a matter of taste thing. But I think there's also a lot of misinterpretations about this movie because there's there's a real obsession with figuring out the formula of what the perfect female character is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And Rosemary is nothing like what people think that formula is. But the whole idea of calculating a formula for that is problematic in itself. It doesn't work because women aren't just one thing. That's why it's not enough to have just the one token woman on the superhero team or whatever. It's real equality means having female characters who are just as diverse in what they represent, what they explore about the human experience as the male characters. It's about giving them room to not be strong and perfect and cool all the time, because that's not how anyone actually feels all the time, even if we'd like to. And, Every male character doesn't have to represent everything about all men. And if we have an equal number of equally well-written and carefully written female characters, they shouldn't have to either. And so I know we were talking that you were saying you'd heard Rosemary called weak. Uh -huh. And I don't think she's necessarily weak, and we'll get into that. There's a lot that I really love about her and when she does try to stand up for herself. I believe that feminism in fiction or any kind of social commentary in fiction can be done in one of two ways. I mean, some pieces manage to bring both of them together, but usually they lean into one strategy or the other. They can either show us the world as it should be, the world as the author wants it to be, to try to sort of normalize that in people's minds and make them realize that it's possible. Or on the other hand, 
they can show us the problems with the world as it is now. And often they, they try to clarify those problems by taking them to a logical extreme or flipping them on themselves somehow so that they stand out against this backdrop of what we're used to and numb to. So, for example, the, the two kinds of feminism in film, you've got, say, Ripley in Alien, who is just all of the ass kicking. She's awesome. And it's not even really a thing. The fact that she's a woman in the first movie, it barely comes up. I mean, James Cameron added stuff later on that has its ups and downs to it. It's another story. But in the first one, her character was originally written to be male and not a whole lot changed when they decided let's cast Sigourney Weaver. Mm -hmm. And that's, even though it's not a utopian future, that element of it, the woman just being there, being powerful, being awesome, and it not being a big deal is uh, this idealized future. Great way to do it. But then on the other hand, you've got, say, The Handmaid's Tale, one of the most famous, important works of feminist literature that's on everybody's tongues. And that's about a woman in a dystopian future that really takes to the extremes the objectification and commodification of women. And it's all these things that happen to her. And she does not conquer in the end. I'm sorry, spoiler alert on that. Um, I actually haven't seen the TV show. Maybe she does there, but in the <laughs> book, she doesn't. And it's a very unhappy ending. And it ends with historians laughing off this weird time and how we can't really judge people for the terrible things they did. And it's really critiquing people having that attitude about humanity's worst moments. And Rosemary's Baby is very much of the Handmaid's Tale school of those two kinds of feminism. It's a story about about a really terrible thing happening to a woman that is rooted in a whole lot of reality. And it stories that show us the problems like that, they're showing us what's wrong, but they're also showing us how the wrong things happen. And I've heard so many people who genuinely want the world to be perfect, but they've never had a certain injustice happen to them personally. They'll say things like, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you fight back? If it was me, I would have done this, this, and this, and maybe that's the problem. And stories like Rosemary's Baby, like The Handmaid's Tale, they force you right into the shoes of the person who's in that situation and show you all the systemic ways that she's being made helpless and all the layers that keep piling on and making her a victim. And they make you identify that with, identify with that and ask you, like, really, you think she's the problem here? And that's what I love about Rosemary's Baby, Rosemary's Baby, because it is so authentic and respectful of the horrible thing that's happening to her, even though it happens and she doesn't really escape it or overcome it. It is showing it in its horribleness and it is her story. It's not about the people who are doing this to her and there's excuses made that, oh, it's OK. It's all about her and her experience. And I think it really does a beautiful job. Okay, so you would definitely call this a feminist horror story. I absolutely would. And this is the point where we have to shoo the elephant out of the room and say, fuck Roman Polanski. Fuck him with a nail-studded two-by-four alongside everyone like him in Hollywood and everywhere else. The fact that this is an amazing movie doesn't change anything about who he is as a person. I don't know if we need to get into it. I know it's not a true crime podcast. I mean... <laughs> If people don't know, they can look it up. And suffice to say, in 
the most improbably Polanski-friendly version of the story of what happened, he's still a fucking creep. Okay, well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up as well. Is it possible for you to hate Roman Polanski and still like this movie? I struggle with that. I struggle with that with a lot of movies. In this case, I can. I know a lot of the time when I find out someone's a terrible person, it taints their art for me, or I'll, on principle, not not look at it because they're still making money off it and being allowed to do that, and I don't want to be a part of enabling that. But with this one, the thing about film in particular is it is so collaborative. So many people's hearts and souls go into this, and the the director just you know gets to stamp their name on all of it. And it's not that directors don't do things. And yeah, Polanski did stuff in this movie that worked, and that's really uncomfortable to look at. Like, what is it about being Roman Polanski that made him so good at at telling this story about a woman who gets roofied and raped? But it's also, it's a Mia Farrow movie. It's a Ruth Gordon movie. It's an Ira Levin movie. And all of those people bring so much awesome, untainted art to this. And the feminism of the story, it's not accidental and it's not a front on Polanski's part. It's, that's Ira Levin's story. And he's the same guy who wrote The Stepford Wives. So it's not an accident. And I, I don't want to give that up just because of him and really is there a better way to remember Polanski's legacy if we have to give him one than to kind of overwrite it with Rosemary's story and focus on her instead of him and why he decided to make a movie that makes that so easy to do I don't know if it's some kind of preemptive self-loathing introspection on his part I don't I don't really care because I'm not in the business of making excuses for him. I don't, there's, there's no excuse. I don't care what's going on in his head or all the things that happened to him, but he, he made this movie where the protagonist is Rosemary and not the person who's doing this thing to her. And it doesn't just brush that off like you might expect. And I, I don't know. It's, it's like your ex sending you flowers and like, okay, you probably think that this means that I owe you hearing you out or something, but it doesn't. I'm just going to enjoy these flowers. And that's what Rosemary's Baby is to me. <laughs> yeah, because when I announced I was doing Rosemary's Baby on Staff Picks, a lot of people said, wow, you got balls doing a Roman Polanski movie. And like, I'm not really a sophisticated thinker. It never crossed my mind that this was a Roman Polanski movie. I just think of it as the Rosemary's Baby movie. And so like, oh, yeah, that might be a topic we have to delve into. So I'm glad you brought that up because I just don't think about stuff outside the movie. To me, it's just a movie. It starts, it stops, and everything that happens in the middle is just the movie. So like, it never crosses my mind to not like a movie because of stuff outside. But I'm glad you defended it in that way because I thought that that's probably an answer my audience would like to hear more just because you clearly put more thought into it. I have. <laughs> yeah, I like I said, I've been tearing my hair out about that because I do that about so many movies that I'm conflicted on for similar reasons. But this is one of the big ones because if you just look at it as the movie itself and ignore everything outside of it, it is not only an amazing movie, but a, an incredibly positive story for all the reasons I've just said. And I actually did a double take upon connecting the movie with him after mm -hmm. finding out, you know, the rest of the story of him. Uh, 
what he's the guy who did that that's not possible and unfortunately it is and that's weird and uncomfortable but I like to focus on all the other artists who are involved and the positivity of the story itself I like that you keep saying the story is positive because we're going to come back to that. <laughs> for those of you, okay, I, I suppose I were burying the lead here. For those who have not seen the movie, this uh, I will give you the quick version. It's about a woman, Rosemary, who's married to an actor named Guy in Hollywood. And they get involved with a witch's coven in New York. And... Uh, and what happens? The, the husband basically sells out his wife if for success in the acting world. He sells out his wife and uh, basically promises his neighbor, my wife will give birth to the son of the devil. So he sells her out and she basically uh, is impregnated and raped by Satan and raises a little devil baby inside her. And at the end of the movie, she is the mother of the little evil being that will overthrow the world one day. But... All throughout this, it's a paranoia thriller because you don't know if she, if this is really going on or if it's just in her head the whole movie. And to me, I find it a very nasty, really cynical little movie, but I'm glad there's some positive things we'll talk about later. But that's, did I miss anything there in the overall summary? Oh, that's about right. And I may have a very strange definition of positive, <laughs> but I, I appreciate how much respect the story itself has for Rosemary and how incredibly insightful it is about what she's going through. Okay, and let's see, what else do we have to mention here? This is one of the really great early modern horror movies. Now, I think I asked Matt this before. It, this is a different definition when one says, like, modern horror movies started. I've heard Psycho in 1960. I've heard uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 74. I've heard Black Christmas in 74. I've heard Night of the Living Dead in 68. So this is 1968. So this is definitely one of the early modern horror movies. Where would you say modern horror started? Do you have an opinion on that? I really don't. Horror's been around in one form or another forever, and it goes through so many different phases and eras. And there's rarely one specific turning point where one era moves into another. So the word modern is just so subjective and arbitrary for this purpose but um i i guess i kind of have night of the living dead in my head as the beginning loosely yeah which is the same year as this movie right yeah yeah so this is really early modern horror and again whenever i rewatch rosemary's baby i'm kind of surprised how hardcore it is for that era like, I kind of forgot that movies could be that hardcore back then, pre, like, uh, the 70s. But this one has, what, a really nasty rape scene in there. It's got, you know, a mom thinking about murdering her baby. There's a lot of stuff in there. Like, wow, I don't know if they could make this movie nowadays. Yeah, it's it's intense. It's I think it benefits from being pre-categorized like before there was really an idea of what a modern horror movie should be and it is a horror movie absolutely no question it's a paranoia thriller mm -hmm. and it it embraces all that is terrifying about that and it is based on a novel so it's also not being written out of a Hollywood formula specifically. And I, I think it benefits from all those things. Yeah, definitely paranoia thrillers are some of my favorite movies. I, I love a good paranoia movie, which is why it breaks my heart a little that my daughter doesn't like this movie. I'm like, how, how could you not, how could you love Arlington road and the wicker man and not love Rosemary's baby? And I'll, I'll give you my daughter's, I'll give you my daughter's rationale is that she doesn't buy devil stuff. 
She's like, I just, she doesn't like the exorcist. She doesn't like Rosemary's baby. She's like, I just don't buy devil movies. I don't think they're scary. Okay. I'm not the biggest fan of Christian horror in general, but this one, I, I can't really say that's a minor part that you can snip out. I mean, that mm-hmm. is what is the evil, but it doesn't rely on devil stuff being scary. It's the human stuff that's the scariest, and that's why I love it. Yeah, and that's my argument. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> but you can tell her I agree on this one. All right, good, because she does look up to you, so this is very good. This is We're going to work on her. <laughs> and then my wife, her the reason she doesn't like Rosemary's Baby, she just doesn't like Mia Farrow, the way she talks her inflection and stuff and she's like i just can't listen to that voice for two hours so it's it's not so much that rosemary's weak which i thought it was she's like no it's just mia farrow she i find her hard to watch it's uncomfortable just watching her Uh, i really like her i i haven't actually seen her in anything else i've read about her she seems like an awesome person and i think she did an unbelievably amazing job in this movie but i i can kind of understand how you can just have that particular thing of an actor rubbing you the wrong way mm-hmm. so I, i'm sure that's happened with me too yeah it's terrible though we're an anti-rosemary's baby's house and i i cannot <laughs> live in an anti-rosemary's baby's house this is such a great movie <laughs> <laughs> well we we get to escape for today and talk about this awesome movie together well i don't have to escape matt loves this movie too yes this positive portrayal of motherhood that you love so much <laughs> Okay, let's see. One other thing I wanted to add is that this movie, not only is it a paranoia thriller, it also falls into the golden age of all these devil religious movies that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. And the other one, which is the evil little kid era, which all these, I mean, you don't really see the evil little kid, but it's implied at the end of the movie he's going to take over society and mankind. So I have to say there's a lot going on in this movie. It's very prominent. I think even on the back of the DVD box, it calls it maybe the greatest horror movie ever made. Which is well, I'm sure a lot of horror boxes say that. <laughs> to be fair, this one has more claim than many. But yeah, I don't know if Motel Hell stands up to the scrutiny. <laughs> but yeah, this one won. Did it win Academy Awards? Did Ruth Gordon win? I believe Ruth Gordon won, and Polanski won as director and as writer. But that's really hollow because he just adapted word for word someone else's stuff which annoys me as a novelist even if i didn't hate him personally but that's what happened because the academy okay and i'm glad you mentioned ruth gordon there because that's the last note i have to add before we talk about the plot of this movie ruth gordon one of my favorite actresses because she's so unique and quirky and full of life and this is the only movie i think you're ever going to see where she's evil if you ever wanted to see Evil Maud from Harold and Maud, this is your movie. You have to seek out this just to see the Oscar-winning performance by Evil Ruth Gordon. I still have to see Harold and Maud. Wait a minute. Also on my list. You have not seen Harold and Maud. I haven't. That one's been on my list forever. How many times has Matt seen that? That's Matt's movie. I don't know. He he hasn't watched it since we've been together, I, I don't think. But I I'm going to have him show me. Okay, my God. Okay, watch Harold and Maude and Rosemary's Baby back to back. You will you will fall in love with Ruth Gordon all over again. <laughs> but you do I like her in this. You, you do like her in this. I do right? love her in this. Yeah. Yeah, for people who know Harold and Maude or know Ruth Gordon, just batty old woman who never shuts up and she's usually full of life. And in this one, she also never shuts up, but she's meddling and nosy and... Uh, manipulative and evil and she's trying to convince a woman to give birth to the devil so there you go 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, are you are you ready to delve into the positive portrayal of motherhood, Rosemary's Baby? I'm ready. Okay. So, how does it start? I'll give you the opening here. How does this move? How do we? How are we introduced into this movie? Okay. Well, we start out with panning across the cityscape, which New York is great. Yeah, it's great because it sets us up to understand that they're not going to need to isolate Rosemary physically to make this one of the most isolating feeling movies ever. She's right in the middle of all these people and she's going to be completely alone. And there's this beautiful spooky singing over the opening credits, this sort of lullaby (laughs) that brings us into the creepy motherhood thing. And one of my weird favorites of this opening Mia Farrow's hairstylist gets her own line in the opening credits. Wow, I did not notice that. <laughs> she does. I, I think Vidal Sassoon also gets a credit opening credit line. I think so. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, to continue. Sorry, just to interrupt. Okay. Um, so someone's showing her and Guy, her husband, um, the apartment building that they're considering moving into. And he tries to lie about what he does for a living. A whole lot of people are going to ask Rosemary what her husband does. That's one of the running threads. And even though he tries to pretend he's a doctor, she just rattles off his acting credits with so much practice that even though this is the first time we hear her do it, we know that she's done it a million times because Everyone asks, what does your husband do? And she has to explain it and make it look impressive. Yeah, because he is not successful up to this point. Not really, no. Yeah, he's a struggling commercial actor trying to make it in the uh, the big world of uh, New York City theater. But yeah, he has not had his big break yet. And that's the whole crux of this movie. Guy will get his big break soon. Yeah, he will. <laughs> So let's see, we had a tenant. So the building they're moving into is this creepy old building called the Bramford, if I recall. And we find out later it was it used to be called the Black Bramford because it's like the heart of all occult activity in New York City, which I guess I they would have. It had a different name. It would have to fight the, the, the building in Ghostbusters, I think, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of that. Anyway, so, yeah, this is the Bramford and lots of horrible stuff has happened in this building over the years. We'll hear about this later. But as they're moving in, we find out the previous tenant just died, right? She was an old woman. Right. And she died in the hospital after being in a coma for a while. And she was really impressive woman. She was a lawyer and she had this big herb garden in the kitchen that they get to see. And they absolutely love this apartment. Well, Rosemary absolutely loves this apartment and guy makes fun of her for being a bad negotiator because he can tell she loves the apartment. Yeah. Okay. So I'll leave it up to you. So explain Rosemary. I'll just give a quick version. Rosemary is a, just a young woman. She's from, I believe, Iowa. They've just moved to New York, and she's trying to make it as a society wife of a famous actor who's not famous yet. Explain kind of her persona, because you probably have more written about her than I do here. Okay, well, her main goal at this point is to become a mom. She she wants kids, and she wants, obviously, for a guy to be successful as well, and she wants a family. That's the main thing we get from her when they ask, do you have children? She's like, I plan to, and she's really excited about it. But also there's tension because obviously she and Guy have argued about this. And she is also very astute and observant right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the first time we see it, uh, the realtor finds out 
there's this chest of drawers in front of where there should be a closet in the apartment. And Rosemary points out the markings on the floor where, oh, it used to be over there. It was moved. And guy in the realtor move it and can't imagine how a woman in her 80s could have moved it by themselves. So already we've got a creepy mystery here. And Rosemary, she's also very, 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 very painfully polite Mm -hmm. and considerate. Everything is about doing her job to make other people's lives easier, which is, again, what I think makes her so uncomfortably relatable to me and probably most of the women in the world. Um, So when they find out about this closet, she asks, well, should we open it? Should shouldn't her son open it if she hid something here before she died? And the realtor insists he has the authority to show the house. And well, maybe, maybe she just didn't need five closets. It's probably no big secret. And Rosemary's like, well, why would she have shut up her vacuum cleaner and towels and not taken them out? She's just not buying this situation that doesn't add up at all already. And the realtor brushes it off as, oh, the old lady's senile. This 80-year-old woman who could not have moved this chest of drawers by herself. And then ultimately the scene ends with Rosemary begging Guy to take the apartment because she's so excited for it. And it's clear that she loves it because there's room for kids. But she has to she has to sell it to him as uh, you'd be near all the theaters, you'd be walking distance. It's it's perfectly located. And she is so practiced at this maneuver already of saying what she has to say to ask for what she wants in a very roundabout, very placating way. Yeah. Yeah. Without question, Guy is the most dominant personality. Rosemary is very, again, not weak, but meek. She has a quieter voice. Guy will just steamroll her repeatedly throughout this movie. Is that a pretty good summary of their relationship? Yeah. I mean, she stands up for herself more than people remember, but it doesn't usually work for her. She doesn't have any of the cards. She tries and ultimately she just really wants this idea she has of her life to work out this, this marriage and the kids that she wants. And she will compromise almost indefinitely to get it, to make things smooth and easy with guy. And it really works against her, not as a character, but as a person. Yeah. And that closet at the start of the movie, I always kind of forget that's integral to the plot later, but just file that one away. There's this closet in the back of their apartment that they can't figure out why it was blocked and it becomes very important later. So Anyway, they they want to take the apartment. Rosemary eventually talks Guy into it, as Fiona said, by saying, oh, you'll be close to all the auditions. You can go to all the theaters. And then we go to a dinner that night where they meet their old landlord, the one who they're breaking the lease with. His name is Hutch. And we have a really interesting discussion here where Hutch kind of fills them in on the back history on, do you know what kind of building you guys are moving into? Yeah, there there was witchcraft here and child eating and one of the tenants claimed to have conjured the devil and then was killed by a mob in the lobby. Fun fact, the building that they used for the Bramford, um, the archway out front is where John Lennon was killed three years after the release of the movie. Again, feeding people's belief that Christian horror is cursed. But that's an outside the movie thing. <laughs> Wait, it wasn't three years. It was, it, I, I don't get yelled at. It was later than that, 10 years, right? Was it? I thought it was. He was shot in 1980. I done this... my math. Yeah, it's 12 um, years. It's 12 years. 68. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was after this movie, though. It's not yeah. something they were uh, referring to. 
It was funny. I'm glad you said that. I didn't know that because I was watching the movie and they keep shot going, pulling back and showing shots of this big ornate old New York apartment building. I'm like, that looks a lot like the place John Lennon was shot. <laughs> so I'm glad it actually was. Thank you for clarifying. It that. is. <laughs> yeah. So we learned that Bramford has a history. It was original, originally called the Black Bramford. There was dead babies found in the lobby. There was people eating children. People claimed to have summoning the devil. And I always forget that this movie's so old. It, it it holds up remarkably well for an older movie. Yeah. Like in the movie they're talking about, yeah, they're like, this stuff happened in the 1890s all the way up to the 1950s. And I'm like, wow, that's a long time ago. Then I remembered, oh, wait. And when the movie came out, that was only 10 years ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, this movie has a devil history, but apparently that's in the past. But Hutch knows all about this, and Hutch will become very important to deliver the exposition later in the movie. Yes, and he will be one of the unfortunate pillars of reason and decency in this paranoia movie that has no room for them. Yes. Okay, preemptive R.I.P. Hutch. He's not going to last. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing. This is, again, these paranoia thrillers are so great because everybody will start to be against the hero and her options will dwindle and dwindle people she can trust as they slowly die or turn on her to the point we will get one character who will turn on her later in the movie who, to this day, the actor still gets hate mail over it. I've heard that. Have you ever heard that before? No, I didn't know that one. Okay. Which... Wait till we get that. I don't want to spoil it. That's, okay. I'll keep people listening. So, so uh, Rose, yeah, Rosemary and Guy uh, move into the building. They celebrate by making love on the floor the first night, and they have a romantic dinner, um, and it's very nice. And they undress in very awkwardly real time and setting up how unstylized their life together is. But they're just young. They're innocent. They're not society people yet. Yeah. And all throughout this, as they're lovemaking, or as they're making love and eating dinner, they hear their loud neighbors next door, the cast of vets, who we will meet soon. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Okay, so now we meet Terry. One day, Rosemary has just moved into this building, and she's down in the really creepy uh, laundry room in the basement, and she meets her first friend. Yeah, and they commiserate over how creepy the basement is, and they make plans to do their laundry together from now on to ward off the scariness. And, of course, Terry asks, what does your husband do? And Rosemary rattles off his credits. And Terry shows off this good luck charm that the cast of vets gave her after they they saved her from dying on the streets, killing herself with drugs. And Rosemary is disgusted by the smell of what's inside. Um, this this herbal good luck charm they've given her. Okay, yeah. For, for people who have not seen the movie, Rosemary's about 25, 4, I have no idea how old she is. She might be younger than that. And this old yeah, other woman... Yeah, I don't woman... know if her age is actually stated. Okay, yeah. This other woman, Terry, is about maybe mid to late 20s. And Terry was a recovering drug addict. She was taken in by these older people in the building, the cast of vets. They look after her. She says they're like her grandparents. They're the nicest people ever. But they have her wear this weird little charm around her neck with a substance inside called Tannis Root which the book goes into way more detail about what this tannis root is than the movie, but it's basically this noxious-smelling fungus that's in a little pendant, and Terry wears it for now. It's very identifiable. File that away later, because it will become very important in Rosemary's life. And also, slightly smaller clue here, she happens to mention that the old lady who used to live in Rosemary's apartment, which used to be part of the Castavet's apartment, uh, was a very good friend of theirs. So this woman who slipped into a coma and died was definitely um, rubbing shoulder, rubbing elbows with the cast of vets. 
Yes. And speaking of dying, Terry's future in this movie is not long. No, because she's Rosemary's friend and she wasn't in on things. Okay, yeah, they don't really explain this. I will summarize this for people. The next day, Rosemary and Guy are walking home from they're out in New York City doing New York stuff, and they see a dead body on the sidewalk outside the building. And it turns out Rosemary's new friend Terry has leapt to her death out the window, and it's surprisingly graphic. I forgot how bloody it is. They show her skull bashed open. Yeah, it actually is. It got me to this this rewatch, and you just think I'm watching something from the '60s. They're not going to show the really graphic stuff, it's going to be scary in other ways, but they don't shy away and it's there. And then as she's lying there on the, on the ground and the, the cops are talking to people, uh, the cast of vets come home and do a terrible job of pretending to be surprised and horrified. <laughs> it's amazing the terrible job they do. Okay, let's let's explain the cast of vets to people. The cast of vets are really, I would say, the stars of the movie, although they're not really the protagonists, but they're the ones you'll remember. And uh, they are the older couple that live right next to Rosemary. In fact, one of their two apartments, it used to be one big apartment, and they eventually mm -hmm. subletted it. So it has a wall down the middle, and it's split into two. And that closet in the middle is the divider. It Technically, there's a secret door there that goes between the two apartments. That's what will become important later. But the cast of vets are just this old, flamboyant couple dressed. The, the first time we see them, they're in the gaudiest outfits you've ever seen. They're, like, in all pink and feathers and stripes. And they're just this weird, eccentric, older couple. And like Fiona said... They really try to feign off that they have no idea why this woman jumped out of their window to her death, but it's clear that they're lying. They stage this argument about maybe she was just cleaning the windows. No, she must have jumped. And clearly they both already know what happened and they're just putting this on for the cops, but they're so used to yelling at each other that it's second nature enough and they're, they just keep on doing it. Just in an old couple kind of way. Yeah, they're they're comic relief at first, until at a certain point in the movie, they're no longer comic relief. Yeah. <laughs> but again, this is, what's, do you remember the actor's name? Did you write down the guy who plays Roman Castavet? I didn't. I don't remember okay. his name. He's awesome, but I wish I knew, I forgot his name, but the the wife, Minnie Castavet, is the wonderful Ruth Gordon, who I'm going to go on a little soapbox here. I, I talked about her in Harold Maude, but she was, did you know this? She was one of the very first writers in Hollywood of, of like movies and screenplays and stuff, the first females. I did not know that. That's awesome. Yeah, she has a really extensive history as a writer. One of the first outspoken, prominent female writers in New York theater and Hollywood movies. And then she had a long writing career, and then she basically hung it up. And when she was older, they talked her out of coming out of retirement and becoming an actor. And so this movie was like a comeback for her, and she was so amazing, she won an Oscar, and then she got Harold and Maude because of that, and then she's basically Ruth Gordon, the, the uh, batty old grandma for the rest of her career up into the 80s. But like this movie was the comeback for her, it's like the second part of her career. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, you, you of all people, yeah. read up on Ruth Gordon. I will, I I did most of my reading on Mia Farrow this time around. I will read about Ruth Gordon next time. Yeah, and I could not possibly do Ruth Gordon's voice justice by trying to imitate <laughs> it, but she talks very quickly, and she has a very, very strong New York accent, and she never shuts up. And, and uh, she's so great in this. Again, she won an Oscar. She's amazing. But at the start here, she's just this batty old woman, and you don't take her seriously. But 
At one point during the conversation, she's like, I don't know. I don't know why this old, why this young woman jumped out of my window. I, she was doing so well in life. And then Rosemary pipes in. She's like, well, I talked to Terry. She has a brother-in-law who's her next of kin. And like, you just see Minnie Castavet's eyes turn towards Rosemary. And she's like, who are you? Because uh-huh. she's already, I forget if it's before or after that moment when the uh, cop shows her the suicide note and she says, undoubtedly, it's Terry's handwriting because who is going to argue with her? Who else is going to know what Terry's handwriting looks like? And just Rosemary becomes a tiny little threat already in this in this moment, just while she's trying to be helpful and polite because she notices things and she remembers things. And that's how Minnie's attention sort of lands on her, which is going to be really, really bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I guess we're not, this isn't really a spoiler podcast. We're not trying to hide this plot details of the movie, but I will just fill this in. It'll get a little richer experience listening to this, that the other girl, Terry, found out that the cast of Ets were part of a witch's coven, and she either killed herself or they did some kind of mind spell to force her to jump. It's something like that that's not really explained. I remember in the book, it's much clearer. And I think, Fiona, in the book, the goal was they were trying to get her to have a baby, and it just didn't work, so they had her kill herself. I assumed that was what happened. Yeah. What with Rosemary later inheriting the charm with the Tannis root, but... um... Terry was version 1.0 and <laughs> earlier, I think we've, we've gone past it. Rosemary has this freaky dream going back to her Catholic school days and it's mixing with what she's hearing in the cast of apartment on the other side of the wall. And Minnie yells, I told you we shouldn't have told her in advance. She wouldn't be open-minded. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, or maybe that's still coming. I forget. No, that's it's right around here. But yeah, Terry was the original protagonist. They pulled this woman off the streets. They tried to, again, they need someone young and fertile to be impregnated by the devil, which that is their master plan. And for some reason, it didn't work out with Terry. Terry died. And all of a sudden, here's Rosemary. And you just see Ruth Gordon's eyes shift towards Rosemary and say, oh, look at this young thing who lives next door to us now. So Rosemary will become the point, the focal point of their attention from here on out. Mm-hmm. Although I do have to bring up one more thing. I forgot about this. The the cast of Ets are what, 85? They're in their mid-80s or so? Um, I think it's stated at some point that it doesn't, doesn't she say Roman's in his late 70s? Something like that. They're in that ballpark. Something like that. Yeah. They're, they're older. Yeah. And so when Rosemary first met Terry, Terry's like, yeah, this old couple adopted me. At first I thought it was a weird sex thing. Uh-huh. Really? You really thought those two were going to be in a weird, you know, menage <laughs> a trois with you? But it turns out she was right. It really was a weird sex thing. So her instincts had been mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Well, she's she's a druggie on the street. I'm sure she's been asked to do a lot of things for getting to stay someplace. <laughs> yes. That's a different movie, though. That's not this movie. Yeah. All right, so now Terry is dead and Rosemary is heartbroken. Her first friend in New York is dead. And now the cast of Vets are going to, for lack of a better term, invade Rosemary's apartment. And invade and infest her life. <laughs> so Minnie comes over to thank Rosemary for saying such nice things about Terry and about her and starts asking about her plans to have a family, asks about the prices of the furniture in her apartment, (laughs) and of course asks what her husband does, so Rosemary rattles it off again. 
And then she asks them over for dinner. And when Rosemary hesitates, she she guilts them with, oh, it's going to be our first night alone. And so Rosemary, polite, polite person that she is, says, okay, you can count on us. I'll, I'll have to run it by my husband. And then when he gets home and he's all despondent from not getting a role he thought was going to get him noticed, uh, she tells him about Minnie and about everything that happened and about the dinner invitation. and guy doesn't want to go he says we get friendly with an old couple like that we'll never get rid of them <laughs> they're like cats yeah <laughs> yeah and rosemary tells him that she told minnie to count on them and they have the most realistically passive aggressive argument ever the only if you want to no only if you want to no it's really okay and through the whole thing we don't even really know what rosemary wants to do this evening She's just going through the motions of juggling her obligations to be sensitive and polite to Minnie and sensitive and polite to her husband and make sure everybody else is happy. And eventually, ultimately, Guy agrees to go. So really, this whole movie is a commercial why you should not be nice to people. <laughs> why you should not be excessively, inhibitedly nice to people. Yes. And also maybe why you shouldn't trust your spouse. If you're married to this guy or one of the guys who resemble him, and I'm just realizing that his name is Guy, which is almost like naming a character Everyman, which is really creepy and kind of misanthropic, but I kind of like it. <laughs> okay, Let, let's talk about this first scene with Minnie. Minnie comes over to the apartment just because this entire scene, I think, is Ruth Gordon just in one long, big sentence. She never shuts up the entire visit. Oh, is this your couch? Oh, what about this? I like your furniture. Oh, look what you did in this room. And then, like you said, she's asking the prices of the furniture. And even Rosemary says, that is the nosiest woman I have ever met. But that's that's Ruth Gordon just absolutely stealing this movie for the first time. I just love that scene. Yeah. And even as she's insulting her about that behind her back, Rosemary has to be nice about it. But, yeah, she's she's feeling absolutely no um, pressure, many, I mean, to to adhere to any of the rules of politeness, and yet Rosemary still feels like she has to. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a performance. She earned her supporting actress. And again, if Rosemary is so nice, she gets suckered into this. Oh, if only she had just pushed that woman out the window. So that's the <laughs> takeaway. If an old woman invades your home, push her out the goddamn window. <laughs> Okay, so let's go to the dinner, which is one of the greatest <laughs> awkward dinners I've ever seen in a movie. Right up there with the mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the dinner with Michael Scott and Jan in the office where they invite all their fan people over. I don't know if you know that. Somebody will get that joke if you don't watch it. I don't. Okay. Uh, my go-to would be your next, actually, for the most awkward dinner scene. But there's a lot oh, there you of go. tension. Yeah, you're next. That's the other movie. If we didn't do Rosemary's Baby, Fiona was trying to get me to do your next. So... We may or may not have an episode on that, but that's Fiona's recommendation for you. I I love that movie. It's if you if you don't like Rosemary's Baby because um, Rosemary never succeeds at standing up for herself, uh, watch your next. It's the horror movie with the heroine who does everything you'd be screaming at the screen <laughs> for her to do. <laughs> that's that's what's amazing about it. That's a good description. I that's very fair. All right, so the dinner. Explain this dinner scene to people. Okay, so they're buttering them up, clearly. I mean, the cast of vets are 
mostly appealing to Guy and Roman does this very cold reading kind of thing with complimenting his acting in the most generic way until Guy says something for him to to feed off of and pretend that that's what he meant and and just pads his ego and they're also talking about the Catholic Church and feeling out whether Rosemary's Catholic and I haven't read the book but I'm assuming that they need her to be Catholic for this to work. Well, and no, she says, no, it's not so much that it's that that's just part of the discussion because the Pope is coming to New York. It's part of the subplot and they just want to know her stance and see if she would be open, how much they'll have to push her into Satanism. Well, she says she was raised Catholic, but now she doesn't know. And I think the way I interpreted it was that she's had a falling out with the church mm-hmm. and she still has some of it ingrained into her, but that, it brought her into this and I mean, not directly deliberately into this satanic cult thing, but it brought her into the realm where this could happen. Mm -hmm. I, I still think they liked that she's an ex Catholic, if not actually requiring it, they might, but the church failed her and the church doesn't come in to save the day in this movie, which is part of why I'm okay with the witches subplot. Cause it's not, it doesn't feel like Catholic propaganda about we are the only way and everything else is evil. Mm-hmm. It's this horrible, dark offshoot of a Catholicism that's already imperfect on its own. And that's what's preying on her is this this fringe thing that was sort of born of it. And they, they have this wonderful moment of... Um, laughing about how much they must spend on robes and jewels. And that's just silly foreshadowing that they're going to do their ritual naked. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah. The interpretation that I got out of that is they just, you know, all they really want is someone who's young and has a womb. That's all they really care about. And I think they just kind of get off on the fact that she's also Catholic at one point. They're like, Oh, this is rich that the, the son of the devil is now coming from a Catholic womb. So I think the cast of us just kind of enjoy that. It's like a bonus for them. Maybe, but it's, specifically drawn attention to that Terry was Italian. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're preying on specific groups where they're expecting there to be a lot of Catholics. Okay. I could see that. It's, and it's, again, it's possible that's in the book. I, it's been 20 years since I read the book. I kind of forget. Well, I will read it at some point and let you know. All right. Sounds good. So the, the big takeaway from the scene is they find out Rosemary wants to have babies and again, mm-hmm. it's very careful. They're drawing all the information out of Rosemary and Guy. And they find out that Guy is up for a part that, uh, you know, Guy, he's charming and he's charismatic. And like many actors, he just needs that one big break maybe to propel him. And he's up for this role right now, but he didn't get it because this other guy, Baumgarten, got it instead. And again, all this becomes important to the plot later. But as you're watching the scene, it's just the cast of it's drawing information out of them that they can use later. Yeah. They get information on her fertility and his his emotional weaknesses and, again, their religion, everything that's going to feed into their choice to use Rosemary. Yes. And when Guy and Rosemary go back to their apartment afterwards, they make fun of them. They're like, those people, they're the worst dressed people. They're gaudy. Their plates don't match. The food was terrible. And they're just laughing at these old people. But Guy was a little seduced by them because Roman spent most of the night telling all these stories of his travels and of acting. And Guy's like, you know, that guy has interesting stories. I better go over there again later. And I'd like to hear more from him. And Rosemary's like, Mm -hmm. really? 
But this will <laughs> this is they're going to seduce Guy first, and that's how they're going to get to Rosemary. Yep, they got that one little hook in him, and that's where it all comes from. And in that scene, also, even while she's drunk and laughing and surprised at Guy wanting to go back, Rosemary, still observant as ever, notes that all the pictures in the cast of its apartment have been taken down for their visit. So that they're they're hiding something. I always forgot there's not there's a payoff for that later, but it's a very mm-hmm. subtle. You have to kind of catch it. It's not really they don't explicitly point out the payoff. Yeah, there's no dun 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 Satanist pictures, but they are there at the end. Yes. Okay, so Roman has his hooks into Guy. They're going to go over and talk about acting and smoke and just kind of hang out. And now Minnie, the wife, is going to invade Rosemary's life, where she literally just walks in and starts sewing one day with her or knitting with her friend. Yeah, they they just come in, knock on the door, and Rosemary is so polite she has to invite them in, even though she was clearly getting some much needed alone time and they come in they sit down they start knitting and then oh they give her the good luck charm that terry was wearing which is creepy but also really um uh, an almost excessive gesture because it looks expensive so now rosemary has to be even more polite (laughs) you might want to wipe some of this terry blood off the top of it before you put it on (laughs) <laughs> and it still smells like the horrible tannis root inside, of course. Yeah. Okay. Now, I guess I should talk about this. I think it's per- in more in the mo- in the book where tannis is. They say T A N I S, but it's actually T A N A S. So it's an anagram of Satan. That's it's oh. it's a what much bigger plot point in the book that they have this. They have her wear this thing around her neck, and it basically it stimulates fertility. It stimulates the body to produce you know eggs and estrogen and stuff. So that's what they were doing with Terry. She killed herself. Now they have Rosemary wear it, and Rosemary doesn't want to wear this thing. It's it, although like Fiona said, it looks expensive, but it stinks. There's like a fungus inside, and she tries to not wear it, but her husband starts pressuring her to wear it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was a gift. You should wear it. But she, at first, she insists and puts it away. But he's going to end up keeping the pressure on, and so are they, and it's going to come out again. But yeah, at first, that's a point of contention. Him wanting to her to wear it, and she doesn't want to. Yes, poor Rosemary. She's the <laughs> the noose is going to start circling around her. She doesn't know it's already starting mm-hmm. to circle, because that we have a first big plot point of the movie is that. Remember when I said Guy was up for an acting role? This guy Baumgarten had it in front of him. Well, suddenly, lo and behold, he gets this call in the middle of the night that Baumgarten has gone blind suddenly. Mysteriously. Nobody knows why. He just woke up and was blind. We later find out that Guy had to personally steal something from this guy for the cast of to do this to him. So mm-hmm. when you're first watching, it's like, what's going on? Could this be a... Um, very unlikely that it's coincidence, but could this be them kind of giving him a free sample? And he's maybe not fully on board yet, but no, he had to go as far as to steal something from this guy already for this to happen. Yeah. He might not have believed it would work, but he did it. Yeah, so we, we're come to believe that when Guy is going up to talk to the old man, Roman, Roman has started telling him, I can give you success. You know, if you give in to Satanism, the Dark Lord, he will give you success. And Guy, we don't see this, but we get the we get the sense. Guy was skeptical, and they said, here, we'll prove it to you. Guy went and stole this other actor's watch or something. I forget what it was. They cast a, a spell on him. A tie. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So and when once the devils have somebody's possession, they can cast a spell on him. They made this guy go blind, and all of a sudden, Guy is the lead actor in the hottest play in New York. And so Guy's like, one Holy that gets you noticed. Yeah. So Guy has just sold his soul basically for success in the acting world, and this is the trade-off he has probably promised his wife's baby to them already. Mm-hmm. And already after this, he starts getting distant, and this has probably happened before. But um, he's he's throwing himself into his career and Rosemary goes and talks with Hutch again, the friend, the old the old landlord. And she's she's kind of asking for a shoulder to cry on, talking about how Guy is ignoring her. But she actually spent the entire time making excuses for him about how, oh, I'm I'm sure all actors are like this. And and it, it comes with the territory and she's also talking about how the Castavets are such wonderful people who, who took Terry in and rehabilitated them. And Hutch is the one who says, well, not very well, apparently. <laughs> that was a great line. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they rehabbed this girl. She was troubled on drugs. They turned her life around. And Hutch is like, what happened to her? Oh, she jumped to her death. And he's like, oh, that wasn't a very successful rehab. Now, was it? <laughs> Yeah, more of this wonderful little patch of sanity that we're only going to have for a little while. And then when Rosemary gets home, place is full of roses, guys waiting to apologize. And it's clearly this abuse cycle that they've already been in for a while. And it's just going to keep on tightening and getting worse. And she does what she's supposed to do. She tells him, oh, it's it's fine. You didn't do anything wrong. And he proposes, let's have a baby. Yeah, Guy all of a sudden becomes very baby crazy. And again, if you know what's going on, he has already promised the cast of Etz, his wife's womb. So he gets very baby crazy. And it's a very romantic scene of him wooing Rosemary and the candles and the, uh, it's like the room. If you've seen the room, it's just like that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is. It's them going through all of these hackneyed rituals of, of baby making that I think is an intentional mirror of the literal ritual that's about to be performed on Rosemary. It's this reflection of that here. We've got the, the dinner and the music and, and all of that. And then later on, we're going to have the chanting and the symbols being drawn on her body. And it's all just this dance around using her. Yeah. And guy has gone so far as to circle the dates on the calendar that she will be ovulating. So these are baby nights Mm-hmm. Oh, she mentioned she mentioned when she was on her period when Minnie was over earlier. So okay. they already knew about this and were able to plan. These other three people know more about Rosemary than she does at this point. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. This is when she's most fertile. All right. So now we go to probably the most controversial scene in this movie. Although the ending gives it a run for its money. But this one. Yeah, I, w- I would find it hard to believe they could include this scene in a modern movie. And I will set it up because I know you like talking about uncomfortable scenes. I will <laughs> Go for it. So this is the dinner scene where Rosemary and Guy are having their their wine and fancy dinner right before they go to bed and make a baby. And uh, there's a knock on the door, and it's their nosy neighbor, Minnie. And Rosemary, of course, is like, please, please don't let her in. Please don't let that old <laughs> woman in. And Guy, much to her delight, tells Minnie to go away. But he does come to the dinner table with these two desserts, these delicious chocolate mousses that Minnie has made for them just on ovulation night, which are basically roofies, we will find out later. 
Only hers. Only hers, yeah. It's in two little separate cups. That's right. So Minnie has made a roofie so they can drug Rosemary, but it's hidden behind the fact that, oh, batty old Mrs. Castavet uh, didn't know how to pronounce chocolate mousse. She says chocolate mouse, and it's a big running joke that she always says chocolate mouse. And in the book, it's way more in the book that Minnie always says chocolate mouse, but it's very silly. But it's the silliness is disguising the fact that this is a roofie. Yeah, and... Rosemary starts eating it and she notices what she describes as a chalky undertaste and she tries to stop. Then Guy complains, oh, it's always something with you. You know, like deciding what she does and doesn't want in her body is unreasonable. And they have another one of their super passive aggressive arguments. Oh, if it's going to turn into a big thing, then fine. And then she tells him to go change the music and she secretly throws out the rest. So that's probably why she's partially conscious later. And then, of course, afterwards, he instantly apologizes for being pushy right as soon as it's too late to do any good and tries to make things up. And then drugs kick in. She starts stumbling around. He puts her to bed and she's fighting sleep because she wants to do baby night. She wants to get pregnant. And Guy tells her, it's fine. It's fine. There's plenty of time. And she passes out and has this weird dream sequence that isn't all dream sequence. She's floating on the ocean and Guy is taking her clothes off and um, someone says Hutch can't come on the boat because he's not Catholic, feeding my theory that her having been Catholic is important. Mm, okay. And someone takes her wedding ring off and she's then lying in a church and someone's yelling about a typhoon and she's lying naked, surrounded by naked people, including the Cassavettes and Guy and they're all chanting and Guy protests, he says, she's she's aware she's noticing and Minnie insists there's there's no way as long as she ate it and someone starts painting symbols on her and uh, someone tells her she should have her legs tied down in case of convulsions from the mouse bite and tells her if the music bothers you we'll have it stop and Rosemary just as compulsively polite in her dream says oh no please don't change the program on my account <laughs> Very polite, even during her rape sequence. So polite, yes. even during nightmare rape sequence. And then comes in the demon, and there's weird hands all over her and scratching at her body, and the demon eyes look into her, and there's this just jarring moment where she looks right at the camera and says, this is no dream, this is really happening. And then she's still hazy and... and partially dreaming while this real thing is happening and she asks the pope for forgiveness while she's being raped by a demon again makes me think the book's not calling catholicism the light that is going to save her just how unbelievably fucked is that yeah this is a tough scene to watch and it but it starts off very dreamlike and silly and then it gets not silly when she's getting clawed by this demon and like, yeah. my God, like, this is a horrible sequence. I Again, you, you kind of forget that they could have stuff like this in movies in the 60s because you're not used to seeing this in movies anymore. But this is where she is impregnated by the devil, and it's pretty graphic. And again, if you've seen the movie Midsummer, it's very similar to that one with all the naked people around watching the, the naked woman have sex. It's very mm -hmm. like that, but there's much more devil imagery and flames and nightmare eye visions. Yeah. And this was this was around the same time it was a big deal having a toilet flush in a movie. Mm -hmm. So it's you're not imagining, I don't think, this being really extreme for the time or 
for any time. It's a really fucked up, scary scene. But that's exactly the point. This is the evil that is happening to her. And it's not romanticized at all. It is not a sexy scene. Yeah, and again, I, I remember the book being even worse. And I guess we should delve into this point, the backstory behind Mia Farrow starring in this movie, because it's kind of ties into this. Are you aware of her back history with Frank Sinatra and everything? Yes. Um, I believe Polanski wanted, uh, what's what's her name? Sharon Tate? Yeah, Sharon Tate. Do he I have her... the right? He wanted her as Rosemary, but they told him, no, you have to have someone with more name recognition, more pull. And Mia Farrow had just gotten in the headlines for surprise marrying Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. So they offered her the part. Frank Sinatra had ordered her to give up her career when they got married. And she didn't. She took this role and she ended up being served divorce papers during the filming of Rosemary's Baby. And she she was on the edge. She almost decided to to say no and try to get out of her contract and go back to him. But they showed her the footage and said, you're going to get an award for this. And she picked the baby. I mean, not <laughs> she picked Rosemary's baby. She picked the movie over him. Yeah. And this wasn't again, that she was forbidden from having an acting career. She went over her husband's head and like, this is the movie she made. And I always think this scene in particular, mm -hmm. like this was a ballsy scene for any actress to film. But when she thinks about, she was forbidden from being an actress and she's standing up to Frank Sinatra, who, you know, <laughs> I don't think it's a secret. He had known mob ties. He was kind of scary. He didn't want to cross Frank Sinatra. So like <laughs> this scene in particular, it took a lot of balls for anyone to do this scene, let alone Mia Farrow. She is an amazing woman, but man, was she surrounded by creeps her whole life. <laughs> I, I, I just feel so bad for her. There were so many. Although that does lead to another question. Does this movie change a lot if Sharon Tate is in it? Now, admittedly, I know you probably don't know a lot of Sharon Tate movies. I don't. From what you have seen, do you think it would make much of a difference? Would like, Does Mia Farrow have to be in this movie for it to be as effective as it is? I don't know that she absolutely has to be the only one because the story is so strong, but I love what she brought to it. And I'm so attached to that that it's really hard for me to imagine someone else. Yeah. I don't, I don't know Sharon Tate all that well. I know a couple of her things, but I know she was not as small and waif-like as Mia Farrow was. Mm -hmm. And like, that's part of the whole story that everyone's evil and surrounding Rosemary, but she's so small and trembling that you've, it's more powerful, I think. So a, I think this movie works better with Mia Farrow than someone like Sharon Tate. But B, can you imagine this movie existing also knowing what happened to Sharon Tate in real life and then watching this movie later? Oh, God. There's already so much horrible synchronicity to this movie that I don't know if I can handle that. Yeah, I don't know if this movie really is known anymore if that happens. It's too forbidden. Yeah. Just, just something that crossed my mind right now. Yeah, a movie made by someone who drugged and raped a girl about a, and starring a woman who was butchered and had her baby cut out of her. Ugh, it's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I guess this is not as positive anymore. <laughs> well, this is the real life stuff. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll move on. That's too dark even for staff picks, I think. 
So the next morning, Rosemary has been impregnated by the devil and she wakes up and she doesn't know, like, was that a dream? Was that real? It was all, again, she was roofied. Whatever mini cast of it gave her knocked her out, but not enough. That's again, she only ate part of it because it didn't taste good. And that's why she was aware of what happened. But she wakes up and she's covered with scratches. Uh Uh-huh. And Guy's cover story is that he fucked her while she was unconscious and hadn't cut his nails recently. I know. That's what he thinks is the reasonable explanation for this. He doesn't even try to pretend that, oh, you you seemed conscious, and did you lose some time, honey? No. He he says, oh, it was kind of fun in a necrophiliac sort of way, in case we didn't get by now that Guy is a scumbag. Yeah, and again, this is why I keep beating you over the head. This movie's a lot more hardcore and unpleasant than you think a 1960s movie would be. It's really harsh for a horror movie. Yeah. Oh, and also he blames her for having wine and cocktails in the same night. Um, And also notes that he was drunk. So, of course, the fact that he was drinking makes nothing his fault. And the fact that she was drinking makes everything her fault. Fuck the real life parallels in this movie. Yes. And again, he did not want to miss baby night. Right. He didn't want to miss baby night. So Guy is kind of a creep. And again, he's going to get creepier as the movie goes along. So get ready for it. Uh-huh. Also, also, women, don't trust your husbands. That's the takeaway here. <laughs> <laughs> At least learn to tell if they're this guy. <laughs> but again, the the point of the movie is how easy it was for someone to end up in Rosemary's situation and how hopeless it is once she's there and how she's. She's this innocent person trying to make the best of a really horrible situation that is so easy to happen to so many people. So I don't I don't want to be too hard on her. I want to bring that up. But, yeah, it's it's bad, her marriage. Yeah, there's literally nothing she could have done to stop this at this point, especially when her yeah. husband is in cahoots against her. Like, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. At this point, she's screwed, and she doesn't even realize there's a problem yet. Yeah. Okay, so we now she's pregnant, and she goes to her OBGYN, and I have to say, this is one of my favorite actors of this era. You may not know him as well. Charles Grodin, very funny comedic actor from the 70s and 80s. He's not so funny in this one. No. <laughs> yeah, it's his acting debut, his acting debut, his first role ever as a doctor. Yeah, and so he gets to tell her the great news that she is pregnant and she does this little dance on the phone and it's so cute and sad because she's so happy and then tells her to come in for another blood test and he claims that the nurse didn't take enough for some extra tests he wants to do, didn't take enough of her blood. So uh, we get some early hints here. He's blaming another woman while lying to this woman about the fact that there's something strange on her results. And this is the good doctor in this movie. (laughs) How dare you impugn the great Dr. Hill? But yeah, no, Dr. (laughs) Hill is, you think he's a good guy and he's going to be the biggest villain in the movie. And again, I I hinted at it earlier that Charles Grodin has said to this day, he still gets hate mail from people that he turned on Rosemary in this movie. He's like, it's amazing the power that that movie had. Yeah. It it depresses me how much people can't tell the difference between characters and actors sometimes, but I also love that people hate that character that much. <laughs> Dr. Hill, the true villain. <laughs> Over the devil. The devil's number two, Dr. Hill. All right, so so Rosemary goes to her husband. She says, well, I'm pregnant. We, uh, we have a little baby. They don't know if it's a boy or a girl yet. And they go into the new honeymoon cycle of their, their abuse where he... 
he apologizes for being a lousy husband again and tells her everything's going to be different. And she says what she's supposed to say. Oh, it's my fault as much as yours. And then the next thing he wants to do, he wants to tell Minnie and Roman. Yes. The old people must know what's happening in your womb. <laughs> and Rosemary isn't happy, but she agrees because it will make them happy. And she bases everything on making other people happy. And so they come over to congratulate her and celebrate. And they bring a bottle of wine because it's the 70s. That's the 60s. And they tell her, we know the best OB. You have to go see him. And Rosemary is worried about offending Dr. Hill, who she already went to. And Guy says he'll take care of it. Just remember that moment because it's going to be important to some hypocrisy later on. Yeah, and so right here, yeah, Guy and the cast of that steamroll Rosemary once again. They say, oh, you're going to go to our friend, Dr. Saperstein, and we'll just call Dr. Hill. He'll go away. This guy's the best. And we hear Minnie call her friend, Dr. Saperstein, on the phone. He's like the best doctor in New York City. He agrees not to give them, not to charge them the high prices. So Rosemary is a little overwhelmed, but just to, again, be polite and do the right thing. She's like, okay, we'll go to your doctor just because I don't want to offend you. Yeah, they make the appointment for her right in front of her, and there's just no way that she can politely get out of it. And politeness is so drilled into her, that means there's basically no way she can get out of it. And then that night, she puts on the Tannis Root Charm, the symbol that she's she is with them now. She is under their horrific care. Yes, and Dr. Saperstein, again, no saint, and nobody in this movie is especially nice to Rosemary. They all have an agenda. There's all a plan. The first thing he does, which I know is near and dear to your heart, Fiona, I know you love scenes like this. He pulls her into the office. He says, you're pregnant. You're a girl. Don't read any books. They'll just scare you. Just listen to me. I love that you knew <laughs> that that was the scene that that was the scene that stuck with me so hard the first time I watched this movie actually that I missed a whole lot of what came after it because I was so mad <laughs> <laughs> it was that distracting to me Saperstein is the part of this movie that's most personally disturbing to me uh, on top of Satan on top of Guy on top of even Dr. Hill Saperstein really <laughs> gets me and but it's it's the perfect thing in a paranoia thriller about gaslighting a woman because that's how you control someone. You control their flow of information and make them doubt their authority on any information they already have. And he gets started on that right on day one and puts her also in the cast of control saying, I'm going to have her make you a drink every day because you can't trust the pills. Yeah, from here on out, it's just a nonstop gaslighting and controlling of every one of her actions. Because, again, if you look at it from the cast of Ed's point of view, they want to make sure the little devil baby is healthy. So they are giving Rosemary protein vitamin shakes every day. They have her wearing the Tannis. Dr. Saperstein is forbidding her from obtaining any knowledge on her own because she's a silly girl, no reading books. And this is the one thing that I think a lot of people remember about this movie is that Rosemary is powerless. She's feeling abdominal pains. Nobody listens to her. They say, oh, that'll go away. And she does the one thing here to maybe obtain a little power back over her life where she does the thing that you did. She cuts her hair. Yeah, she she gets the haircut from from a bob that she had into this gorgeous, soon to be legendary pixie cut. And I think you're exactly right about what what she's doing there trying to make one choice about her own body for herself and of course when she gets home guy tries to make her feel bad about it um because she's making a choice about her own body and also it's one that defies gender conventions because she's cutting her hair short which was 
I mean, people still complain about women doing that today, but at the time it was even more revolutionary. And he says, don't tell me you paid for that. Yeah, this is definitely iconic, an iconic hairstyle. I'm trying to remember my knowledge of history. Was this the really first big pixie haircut in a movie? Because I remember this was a big deal. This was a, like the, the fashion out of this movie became a big deal. I don't know enough of the history to know if it was the first, but it was, I know, very famous and, and trend-setting. And again, this is why you originally cut your hair. Again, I've known Fiona for a while. For years, she's rocked the short hair. So that's 100% from Rosemary's Baby? I first decided to cut my hair because I was really tired of how much work went into just maintaining long hair. And I realized, why am I doing this? Why, why do I care about keeping the hair long? I don't even remember why I grew it out like this. And I went through a few phases, but eventually realized I wanted something short that was out of the way, out of my eyes, and just something effortlessly cool looking that I didn't have to do much for in the morning, that I didn't have to worry about, am I being feminine enough? And she became kind of an icon for me for that, yeah. Okay. Were you wearing the Tannis root also? No. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. Okay, so now we go through a long stretch of the movie. And again, in the book, this is a really long stretch in the book, much more in the book than in the movie of Rosemary's difficult pregnancy. And again, it's, they're very uh, kind in the movie to tone it down. But yeah, it's just months and months of claws and horns scraping around on her insides and the tail. And it's just horrible. And she's in horrible, constant pain. And yeah, this is the and, and she starts eating weird things because, you know, you eat what the baby wants. And she eats like blood and fat and raw liver and raw steak. And again, in the book, it's nasty, but they really tone it down a little in the movie. For It's, it's very nice for you, people like Fiona, who might be pregnant soon. <laughs> yeah, and she keeps being told, Saperstein keeps telling her it's perfectly normal. It'll go away any day now. And she she reads the book. She's worried about it might be an ectopic pregnancy which is a legitimate thing to be terrified of and he scolds her for reading books because of course he can't have her educating and advocating for herself and she gets progressively more gaunt and sickly looking and she can tell she looks awful in the mirror when she talks to guy he says oh you look great except for the haircut because of course her being too skinny couldn't possibly be a problem and yeah she eats all the weird things and eventually hutch visits and says she looks terrible, and she assumes he's insulting her hair, too. But, no, he's the sane one and says it's about how ridiculously, terrifyingly skinny she is. And she says she's pregnant. And he says, it's ridiculous. Pregnant women gain weight. And she just talks about how her doctor's one of the best in the city and eventually gets him to defer to that authority. And Roman catches her seeing Hutch, someone outside their sphere of power and... Uh, invites himself in because Rosemary's so polite and has to let him in and observant as ever. She notices that he has a pierced ear, which is apparently deeply significant in the sixties for an older man. That doesn't. Well, yeah. Yeah. For an older man to have two pierced ears, that would have been highly unlikely. <laughs> yeah. It's, it only seems weird to me now of this is some big clue that he's a Satanist that, Oh my God, he has a pierced <laughs> ear, but. Well, you know why Fiona, you know why it's because you read too many books. <laughs> sorry <laughs> we have to take a break now she's gonna swear at me for the next 30 seconds <laughs> yeah cut out the microphone 
fuck. Okay. No, okay. But yeah, the, the, the takeaway here is that Hutch is over and Hutch is wondering, why are you so skinny? Why are you so gaunt? And Mia Farrow really is frightening in the scene. She really is pale and skinny. Like, man, she, she went through the ringer in this movie. Yeah, and Hutch is like, what is this foul-smelling thing around your, your, you know, your, your necklace? And he says, she says, oh, that's tannisteri. He's like, I've never heard of that. He apparently knows a lot about herbs and stuff. So he's like, I'll look up this tannisteri and I'll get back to you. And so Roman Castavet is like, huh, this guy's a little too nosy, and Hutch is not going to be in this movie much longer. Once again. Yeah, he's he's watching and looking and getting nervous and uncomfortable about Hutch being here. And when Hutch says the thing about her her having lost so much weight roman's a charming thing oh she'll gain weight later on probably far too much because there's nothing classier than preemptively fat shaming an underweight pregnant woman and but the main thing of it is he's fixating on hutch as he is a problem he has been marked now yeah, and there's a scene here that I always forget the significance of until later where oh, yeah. where Rosemary's talking to Hutch, the, again, the only guy in the movie who really is could help her at this point. And all of a sudden, her husband, Guy, comes rushing back from rehearsal, still in his makeup. He's like, oh, Hutch, oh, how you doing? And somewhere in the middle of the scene, he steals Hutch's glove because he's going to give it to the cast of Vets so they can cast a spell and kill Hutch. But I always forget that's why Guy comes home so quickly right there. Yep, and then, yeah, and then the glove is missing when he leaves and they draw just a little bit of attention to that and then of course once he's gone guy starts casually talking shit about him <laughs> yes okay so i'm going to speed through this because i want to get to the ending here ending here but so hutch calls rosemary that night and he says you know tomorrow meet me i have to tell you something i found something about the cast of Vets, about tannis and she's like what is it he's like well i can only tell you in person i'll tell you tomorrow so rosemary's concerned what is up that hutch found out she goes the next day she finds out hutch never shows up he laps into a mysterious coma right before he was supposed to meet her and uh-oh, and like she doesn't find it suspicious. She thinks it's tragic. She's like, oh, no, Hutch is in a coma. But there's much more sinister reasons for this later, we'll find out. Because what happened when the old lady died, who was in the apartment that she's in now? Mysterious coma. And, of course, she finds out, right after she finds out, she's out looking at a nativity scene. So little clues there of what's happening. And Matt pointed out the other day, that she's constantly surrounded by roses and he thinks you're supposed to subtract rose from rosemary to get she's the reverse mary oh that's good there's no yeah. way that's not intentional yeah cool thank you matt <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh so rosemary has lost her one alley he's lapsed into a mysterious coma and she's still having these excruciating pains in her belly and she's like and you know pharaoh does an amazing job with that too she makes you feel it when she she takes these moments when rosemary is alone and she's just trying to will her way through it and it's it's sad yeah and rosemary's gonna do the one thing here she's gonna stand up to guy and stand up to these old people and this is like her last stance of of making a stand for herself and getting some control back in her life. She's like, you know what? I'm not feeling good. I, my, my doctor keeps telling me it's going to go away. It never goes away. So she's like, I need some young people in my life. All of a sudden, all my friends in life are these old people, the cast of bats, all their cronies. So above or over Guy's head, she throws a party with all her old friends just to get some youth in her life. And Guy is furious. Uh-huh. And he, he says, what about the pain? And she says, so beautiful. 
haven't you heard? It's going to go away any day now. <laughs> yes. And this party scene is nice. Like her friends are there and Rosemary's genuinely happy and they're all rallying around her. They're like, why are you in so much pain? She's like, well, my doctor says it'll go away. And all her friends are giving her good advice. They're like, dump that doctor. He's terrible. Go on real drugs. So one of them has to forcibly kick Guy out of the room in order to do this. He is he is trying to bang down the, the kitchen door while they're supporting her while she's in pain and terrified that something's gone terribly wrong. And they're telling her get a second opinion. Yeah. And again, the next morning guy is furious because Rosemary's standing up. She's like, I want to see my original doctor, Dr. Hill. Dr. Saperstein just lies to me. He won't give me any drugs. And guy is like, no, that would offend the cast of vets. And it would offend. It's, it's not fair to Saperstein. It's not fair to Saperstein. This, this guy's actual job is taking care of this woman's well-being, but his ego and reputation and convenience are still, so much more important than her actual well-being. Plus, that's not even what Guy cares about because he sure as hell didn't care about Sap. I mean, care about Hill being offended when he wanted her to switch to Saperstein. It's about what's good for Guy's career, and he says he won't pay for it because that's the other way you control someone other than controlling the flow of information and their contact with the outside world and the culture of what's acceptable acceptable behavior for them. You control them economically, and he is. He's the man, he's the one with the job, and he controls everything in her life economically, including her medical care. And he's making it very clear he can abuse that power whenever he wants to. But Rosemary is fed up. She's not backing down on this one. And she calls him out and yells, what about what's fair to me? And then suddenly the pain stops. And she feels a kick. And she's so happy and relieved that she drops everything because she... This is what she wants. She wants everything to be okay. And finally, she can pretend that it is. And overshadowed kind of by Mia Farrow's performance there of, of that shift in her, there's Guy being really terrified of the fetus moving because this is what he wants too. That's, this is what he agrees to. But he knows that it's the Antichrist and he <laughs> won't come near her because now it's getting real to him that that's what's in there. Yeah, this is a big turning point in the movie, and the whole tone of the movie changes, where it's a paranoia movie, things are terrible for Rosemary, and all of a sudden it's going to be super happy because the baby moved, and it kicked, and there's no pain, and like the music in the movie is going to change, it's going to get super happy mm -hmm. for the next half hour. Although, I have to bring something up, and I'm worried you're going to chew my head off here, so I'm, I'm, I'm already anticipating. Am I now? <laughs> well, I know it's a horrible phrase to use in this movie to say devil's advocate, but... Let's just say that Guy has promised the cast of Vets his future son, his wife's womb, as their antichrist. And they have, given, they have given him success in the acting community. Uh-huh. Is it not realistic to think that if his wife goes to Dr. Hill or if this baby doesn't survive or the baby never comes out and is the antichrist, the cast of Vets may kill him and Rosemary and he knows that? You're right. That is possible. I'm just saying. It doesn't I, I, yeah. change what he did to get them into this situation. I agree. Yeah, he's the he, asshole. And he yeah. is not, he's not really trying to protect her. He's trying to protect his career. Because if this goes wrong, at the very least, he will lose that. Yeah, at the very least. But I suspect there's a bigger thing that if this baby is not coming out, both Rosemary and Guy are down on the pavement just like the, uh, the Terry girl was. 
That's true. There, there's a good chance of that, but you know, whose fault is that? Yeah, I am not. Yeah, I'm not uh, <laughs> uh, making excuses for Guy. I'm just saying, do not make deals with the devil, people. It does not end well. <laughs> yeah, just don't. So yeah, so so Guy and Rosemary have their fight, and this is the moment she is gonna stand up to him, but the baby in you know kind of a plot contrivance all of a sudden kicks right at the moment she's gonna stand up, and now she's happy. Now she loves the baby, and now it's all just bliss that Rosemary goes back on the protein shakes. She starts listening to Minnie. She's like, oh, well the baby's happy and healthy, so all that stuff they're doing is right, and I'm wearing the Tannis again, and this is really the golden age of Rosemary here. Yeah, she's happy and she's decorating and she's friends with everyone. And then she gets a call that Hutch is dead. And she feels really bad that she hasn't even thought about that while she's been all happy and excited and preparing for the baby. And yeah, this is important. Okay. So she goes to the funeral alone and meets the friend that she talked to on the phone on the day when she was supposed to meet him. And she's told that he woke up briefly and said, Give Rosemary the book on his desk and tell her the name is an anagram. So the friend gives her a book wrapped in paper and leaves her with this mystery. And she goes home. And of course, Minnie sees it and looks at the, the outside of the package for Rosemary finally gets rid of her and opens the book. And it's called All of Them Witches. I have to say, I love that scene where <laughs> Minnie's at the door and she sees Rosemary has a book and Rosemary's not allowed to read books. And <laughs> Minnie deftly gets the book out of her hand. And right before she leaves, Rosemary takes the book out of Minnie's hand. It's done very quickly, but you realize what's happened there, that Rosemary has accidentally saved herself, that Minnie was going to sneak off with all that, that witch knowledge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she opens it and she reads about the Marcato family. Um we're leading the witches in Hutch's stories and she dismisses it as nonsense. And she goes back to the anagram clue and thinks, okay, what's he trying to tell me? And in possibly the best product placement ever in movies, <laughs> she takes out her Scrabble game and spells out the title, all of them witches and starts rearranging it into anagrams. And she's really good at it, but she just gets nonsense comes with the fall and, Elf shot lame witch and uh, how is hell fact be? And then she opens her hand and there's a T still in it that didn't fit. And then she goes back to this dog-eared page for Stephen Mercado and she spells that out and rearranges it into Roman Castavet. So that's the big revelation moment for her. Yeah, I think we skipped over why that's important. At the start of the movie, when they talked about all these people that were in this building, this uh, Black Bramford or whatever, one of the guys was Adrian Marcato. He was this big devil worshiper. He's the one that I think was beaten or they found dead. I forget, but it was a big deal. This guy, Stephen Marcato, is his son. So right. Roman Castavet is the son of the most powerful witch in New York history. Yeah, and that freaks Rosemary out because she reads what the book says about how oh, they eat and sacrifice children and when Guy comes home bearing flowers again because they're in that part of the cycle he finds she's put the chain on the door and she poor Rosemary who wants to believe that she has a salvageable marriage tells him the truth about everything she's figured out and shows him the book and shows him the picture of little Stephen Marcato and the dates line up and the anagram and Guy tries to laugh it off and says, oh, well, with a crazy dad like his, no wonder he'd change his name. But Rosemary's still freaked out about these 
witchcraft rituals. And, and she brings up the chanting in the apartment across and Guy takes the book away and puts it on a high shelf and tells her to go to bed. <laughs> I, I refuse. I will not make a joke about that this time. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a saint. Okay. Um, so Rosemary then goes to Saberstein. It's one of her more annoyingly naive moments. I will not deny, but she's, she thinks that while well, he was right about pain going away and she tells him what she suspects and he plays along. He pretends to give her everything she wants. She, he says he understands how she feels about her baby's safety and, oh, you won't have to take drinks for them, them anymore. I'll prescribe you some pills that will be good enough for this last part. And he, he even promises to get Roman to leave the country. Um, or I forget exactly what he said. He's dying. He's going to. Yeah, he's dying. That's the story. Roman, that uh, Roman Castavet's really dying, and he wants to go on one last trip around the world. So now that he knows that he doesn't need to be around for the baby, I'll send him away. Yeah, and he he's going to convince him to take that vacation now instead of waiting for the baby. So the Castavets leave, and they have this friendly goodbye hug outside the building. And Rose, I mean, Minnie tells Rosemary she'll see her again when she's all happy and thin again. Because even when they're being friendly and happy and Rosemary's getting everything she wants, they're still being passive aggressive and mean. But um, they leave and she thinks, okay, I'm, I've taken steps and I'm making sure my baby's going to be safe. And she goes home and looks for the book and Guy admits to throwing it away, saying he, doesn't, he didn't want her upsetting herself, which is the oldest line in the book for men telling women not to think for themselves in inconvenient ways. You'll just upset yourself. <laughs> And Rosemary tells him it was a terrible thing to do. She doesn't even brush this one off and say, oh, it was my fault as much as yours. She's she's getting fed up with him again. And she tells him, but there's just not anything she can do about it. The book is gone. And the next shot, she's wandering out into traffic. And trivia, <laughs> Mia Farrow later said in an interview, the traffic was real. That's her walking through actual New York traffic with Polanski following her with a handheld camera because no one on the film crew would do it. And the way he persuaded her, he persuaded her to do it by saying nobody's going to hit a pregnant woman. Like, you know, they voluntarily hit anybody else, but you're going to be safe. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the less said about Roman Polanski's treatment of his actresses, the better. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I know. Okay. We went through that already. Never mind. So, okay. We, so we did. So she throws the Tannis route down the storm drain and she goes into a bookstore to get all the books she could find on witchcraft. And she reads about witches causing blindness and deafness and paralysis and death using a victim's belonging. So she calls the blind actor and he says how happy she must be living it up with Guy and everything's good. And she tells him Guy has his tie. And he says they switched them. And so now she knows Guy's in on it. And she packs up everything and runs out of the apartment. Okay, yeah. This is a pivotal scene in the movie. It's really hardcore from here on out. It's just everybody against Rosemary. She has learned, I think, from the book. We skipped over that, that the what, what the Tannis is also known as the devil's pepper or something. It's like a fungus that's always used in satanic rituals. She learns that you need a possession and you can cast spells on people. And she learns that guy has actually done that. So guy is an active participant in all this. 
Mm-hmm. So she goes to Dr. Saperstein and Yeah, cuz she still thinks he's on her side. And she but finds then... out, Yeah, she finds out from Dr. Saperstein's uh secretary that, "Oh, I'm glad you're not wearing that Tannis root anymore. It's so stinky." You know, Dr. Saperstein wears one of those too. And so Rosemary realizes even the good doctor is against her. Nobody's on her side. Huh? That's how she figures that out. She runs out of the office. Of course, first she has to claim that she has to go outside to tell her husband something. Because even when she's running from cultists, she has to be polite and have a have a good excuse to walk out on them. And she goes to a payphone to call Dr. Hill and beg for help. And it is possibly the tensest scene in the movie while she's sitting, standing in this phone booth, making calls and trying to get him to call her back and people are walking by the phone booth in the background and we're wondering if each one of them might be a part of the conspiracy coming to bring her home. And it just feeds in and out of this wonderful, terrible social awkwardness of her needing this phone and knowing that other people might get angry with her for monopolizing it, even if they're not in on it. So she's faking talking on the phone while she's waiting. And then she's swearing to her baby that she's going to find a way to keep it safe. And he'll finally answers. And she begs him to see her and tells him there's a plot against her, and my husband may call you. And he says, don't worry, I'm not going to talk to anyone else. And there's this awfully tense moment where she's cornered in the phone booth, and there's this guy right outside, and ultimately he just smiles at her and wants to use the phone. So she takes a taxi and makes the driver watch to make sure she gets into Dr. Hill's office safely, and she thinks she's finally safe. And she tells him everything she's read, and... If you want to play a little bit of devil's advocate, she does sound completely insane in this scene. She and does, that's yeah. part of this. <laughs> that's part of the point that by this point she is she is feeling unhinged because of what's actually being done to her, and she is a little naive. Think she's someone who thinks that because something's in a book that it's true, and of course in this in this case it is, but she doesn't know how much of a a fringe psycho she kind of sounds like when she's ranting about which is wanting to steal her baby and how her husband now wears pajamas because he's been marked by the cult and one of the things that happens is she's she's getting more obsessed with the witches coming to get her she starts talking in more religious terminology she swears by all the saints at one point and there are all these little moments like that that she didn't have as the fairly secular person that we knew before before the cast of vets, but none of it saves her. And she, she tells all this to Dr. Hill and it seems for a moment, like he's ready to give her the benefit of the doubt. And he says, okay, I don't believe in witchcraft, but I believe there are some crazy people out there and maybe they're after you. And then she mentions Saperstein's name and says he's part of the cult. And Hill's whole demeanor just shifts right in front of her. Cause now she's accused someone who's powerful and respected in his particular field so now, irrevocably, she's the crazy one. Yeah. And he tells her to lie down and rest while he ar- makes arrangements to take her to the hospital. And she's so relieved. She tells her baby they're going to be safe. She mutters about witches and get, takes the prescribed pills out of her purse and, and pushes them aside. And she has a dream about holding her baby and surrounded by happy people. And Hill comes in and wakes her up. And he lets in Guy and Saperstein. The betrayal. It's oh. it's horrible. Yeah, this is like I said, the actor Charles Grodin to this day still gets people yelling at him because he turned in poor Rosemary. <laughs> I get it. 
So Rosemary is led. The nice, kindly doctor and her husband escort her back to her apartment because she's a hysterical young woman now. And they're like, everything's going to be okay. But but she's screaming. Oh, if you if you don't come and come quietly and follow the rules, we'll send you to an institution because that's the threat. If you don't be a good woman and follow the rules, then you're marked as crazy and you lose what little say you ever had in anything. And that's what they're saying. That's how they get her in the car. Yeah, and it's important to point out here that Rosemary is not quite aware of what's going on in the endgame. She still thinks they want to hurt her baby. Yeah, she thinks they're going to eat it. She doesn't know that it's not human. Yeah, she is not aware of the bigger picture, as as they say in, uh, was it Airplane, unbeknownst to her, but knownst to us, that uh, <laughs> she she... She is really trying. She thinks she has a perfectly normal baby inside her, and these people are going to sacrifice and use it in a ritual. And she just, I think she has a name, Andy or Jenny. They haven't decided if it's a boy or a girl they don't know yet. Yeah, because it's pre-ultrasound, and she's she's talking to her imagined future baby, and she's making promises. And her whole goal through this is just keep her kids safe. Yes. That's her main thing. Yeah, so when the uh, the devil people, the worshipers, grab her at the end, they say, very truthfully, I put out, you know, in their defense, we're not going to hurt you or the baby. And they're correct, but she doesn't know that. That's true. Yeah, and she but goes yeah, and hides. She has every reason not to believe them. Yeah, she goes and hides her in her apartment. She locks herself in her apartment, and she starts calling everybody she can. And this is where that secret door comes into play again. Yeah, she gets there by, and I love this moment, uh, she seems to be going being docile, following between them. And then she drops all the contents out of her purse. And she does it on purpose. And the men bend down to pick it up. And there's this image of them basically taking everything she has left in the world. But while they're doing it, she jumps in the elevator and drives it to her floor and locks herself in the apartment, puts on the chain and tells them to go to hell. And she, yeah, she's calling everyone for help. And we see cult members tiptoe past in the open doorway behind her because they can get into the house through the secret passage. And from here on out, Rosemary's powerless. She has no power. They overpower her, Guy included, her horrible husband. They tie mm -hmm. her down. They hold her down. They inject her with a sedative that will knock her out. And blissfully, we do not see her give birth to the Antichrist, although in the book I remember it's a little more graphic. But in the movie, she just passes out, and the next morning she wakes up, and she's in bed, and she's like, what happened? And basically they all have to explain to her, oh, you know, you had a boy, and uh, he was stillborn, so he's dead now, but you did a good job. Never mind. Nothing happened. It was just normal. Well, first they tell her that, oh, you had a boy, and everything's fine. And the next time she wakes up, it's, oh, it died now, and, um, oh, Saperstein. Saperstein says, oh, he might have been able to save it if, if they were in a hospital, but she wouldn't listen. She was screaming for a hospital the entire time he was drugging her. And they tell her, oh, it, it's, it's fine. You did great. You'll be able to have others. And they drug her again. And Guy, and guy, gets, guy gets super nice here. Where Guy's like, yeah, Guy, this is where the gaslighting. I'm sure this is your favorite part of the movie. He's like, you know, you were just hysterical. I was on your side the whole time. You made it all up. It was all dreams. No one was against you. Your baby just died. It happens. We we have a bright future ahead of us. So the bigger picture here is the baby was healthy. It was the Antichrist. It's been skirted off and given away to the cast of vets. And if Rosemary were to not snoop at this point or not inquire, 
then they'd probably be able to get away with it and move away and go back to the Midwest and nothing would be... Like, in Guy's mind, he thinks they can get away with it, but Rosemary is not stupid and it's going to foil the plan here for him. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, they, I believe they would have been allowed to get away and live the life that Guy had bought for him. He just underestimated that Rosemary would not just go along with this and swallow this story about how she imagined this whole thing happening. Mm -hmm. And so she, she starts hiding her pills and when she, yeah, they're still drugging her. Yeah. They're still drugging her afterwards and she can hear a baby in another apartment and they tell her, Oh, it's some other couple that moved in and they're still having her pump breast milk and give it to them. And they're claiming they're throwing it away. <laughs> and this ending this ending goes on for a while with people coming and going and her getting drugged and waking up. But it's just building, building, building this tension for the real ending to come. Yeah, I forgot about that. This movie's two hours, 16 minutes long. I looked at it today. And she gives birth at 154 or something like that. There's still 25 minutes left in the movie. Yeah, and it you just keep waiting for what's the next thing that's going to drop. How long are they going to make her wait in this room? And she's still smart, still observant. She tries putting her dirty spoon in the pumped milk and a cultist freaks out and stops her, but can't come up with a good reason. And that's how she's absolutely certain that her baby's alive. Yeah. And she can hear it again. They can hear into the cast of apartment. It's part of been a subplot, the whole movie. And here we go to the end scene. And again, this one always gets listed in like the most iconic horror scenes of all time. The scariest scenes. I don't know if it's necessarily scary, but it sure is memorable yeah. where, uh, let, let me set it up. I'll give you the final image part. So, Rosemary hears this baby in another apartment, and she thinks they've taken her baby for a sacrifice. Again, she's not quite aware of the final endgame here. And she sneaks through the secret passage into the Castavet's apartment, and she's over there, and she grabs a knife. She's trying to defend herself. She thinks the cultists are going to come kill her. And so she's walking around the Castavet's apartment. There's, like, the devil pictures on the wall, the ones that had been taken down earlier. And you see it for what it is. There's a picture of uh, Adrian Mercado up on the wall. And she sees finally the coven of all the witches and all their glory. And in the middle of the room, she sees a crib and it's all draped in black. And she thinks that's probably my baby. They're going to sacrifice it. And as she starts walking through the room, the people see her and some of them shriek because Rosemary is not supposed to be here. Yeah. And um, Guy freaks out and is about to get up but then he sits down and just adjusts his hair or like he's just casually sitting there and everyone kind of looks like they're shocked at first and then it's kind of well i guess the jig is up and they're just watching her and roman starts to try to talk her down and she's like shut up you're in dubrovnik i can't hear you because he lied and told her he was leaving the country mm -hmm. oh other thing about this scene the whole cult's they're all white except for one Asian guy. And Matt pointed out that he thought that was a reference in Get Out. And we looked it up and Jordan Peele actually mentioned in an interview that this was a an inspiration for that scene. So huh. okay. extra trivia there. <laughs> so she comes in and everyone's just staring at her. And there's an inverted cross hanging over the crib like a little mobile. Oh. So she walks over to the crib and she looks inside and there's this look of horror that is so much better than anything they could do by actually making up a baby. And she's 
terrified and asks, what did you do to his eyes? And this is where they explain what happens. He has his father's eyes. His father is Satan. Wait, let me quote this because I love quoting this part. Okay. Where Mia Farrow just shrieks, what have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? And we don't really see the eyes. We just kind of see a flashback to her rape sequence when you saw these cat eyes. Mm-hmm. So that's all you see. And she shrieks. And then Roman says, he has his father's eyes. And she's like, guys, eyes don't look anything like that. And then Roman says, Satan is his father, not guy. He came up from hell and begat a son with a mortal woman. Hail Satan. And they all start chanting, hail Satan. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Minnie tries to make this. She tries to make this a compliment. She says, he chose you of all the women in the world. And as Rosemary's finally catching on to what's really happening, she drops the knife and it sticks in the ground and Minnie just picks it up and rubs away the spot on the floor. And that was one of the moments that stuck with me the most the first time I saw it. And I can't even fully explain why. It's just how casual and practical and weird it is. Like like this whole movie, all the evil is so casual and she's just this this nosy neighbor lady who's fussy about things. And she's still that person, even when she's revealing that she's part of this Satanist cult and that Rosemary's baby is the Antichrist. <laughs> Good old Ruth Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so they're all chanting hail Satan, which is now the most awkward baby shower ever. And, <laughs> although it gets creepier because now uh, Roman points out, we named your baby Adrian. He is the Antichrist. He will overthrow God. He will lay waste to mighty temples. And now he chants, God is dead. Satan lives. The year is one. And they all start chanting her baby's name. Hail, Adrian. Hail, Adrian. And she goes, oh, God. And one of the cultists tell her to shut up or they'll kill her. One of the others says, she's his mother. Show some respect. So they're already fighting about what her role is here now that she knows this thing. And speaking of her role, this is where we go to the iconic ending of this movie, which is, it's a fun one because it's, it, it turns the movie on its head a little bit. And it maybe does maybe get a look at a little more positive, like you said at the start, where uh, Rosemary goes to the baby and everyone's horrified. They're like, she's going to kill it. And Roman, the voice of reason, the leader of the cult says, no, she is the boy's mother. Let her go up. And even Guy is like, no, she's going to do something to the baby. And Roman's like, I have faith. Let her walk up to the baby. And she goes up and uh, Roman says, he's like, you don't have to believe. You don't have to be part of our cult, but you are the boy's mother and he will need a mother. So would you please at least raise him and be a mother to our Antichrist? And Rosemary is like, you know what? fuck it. I think I will. And she's like, yeah. she picks up the baby and she's going to raise it. And you see the look in her eye of love and like, you know what? All things considered, it's still my baby and I will raise him. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. And then the lullaby comes back in and it's clearly the sound of Rosemary mothering the Antichrist. And I want to be clear, she wasn't taken in by any of the fame and fortune offers. Guy comes up to her and says, Look how much we're getting in return. And she spits in his face. She's over Guy. She's she's not cool with the deal that he made, but she still loves her baby. Mm-hmm. And I know some people some people are disappointed in it, and I get it, and she's she's kind of been beaten. But I think it works in the same way that the rest of the movie does. I think she stays partly because the same reason everything in the movie happens. She wants to be a mother so badly, and she wants to keep her child safe. And she keeps getting psychologically broken down until she'll accept 
any little sign that everything's going to turn out okay, or at least in a way that she can live with. And it happens over and over again until she's been broken down far enough that she'll accept being with her baby, even if it means she's raising the Antichrist for the cult that did this to her. But that's part of it. But I also think that the ending is kind of a metaphor for being the mother of a son. And maybe this is because I, I love the Karen Kusama unofficial sequel. Have you seen the movie XX? I have not. And I was just going to say, I really wish there had been a sequel. And I never say that ever, but I would like to know what happens to <laughs> Rosemary and her baby. It's like one of the rare movies. I think there's actually a story after this. Okay. Two people have written a sequel. Ira Levin did write one. I don't know what happens in it, but I know it exists. And Karen Kusama wrote one and it's unofficial. She changes all the names, but it's very clear what she's doing. Karen Kusama, the, um, the director of The Invitation, mm. uh, which Mario talked about with Matt for those listening. Um, it's, uh, Karen Kusama is one of the directors who did the four shorts in XX. It's, it's an anthology movie and it's really good. Um, but hers is one of my favorites. And it's about Rosemary having run away with the baby and the names are different. And she's been running from the cult, from running from the cult and from Guy her whole life. And now she's got this teenage son who's the son of the devil and, he has that evil calling to him and she is trying to raise him into a good man and convince him that he doesn't have to be that. And it, it speaks to the anxiety that I know I have about becoming a mother. That If I have a girl, I'm going to be scared of what the world's going to try to do to her. And if I have a boy, I'm going to be scared of what the world's going to try to turn him into. I'm not saying there's any inherent difference when kids are born, but just in the way the world treats them. A boy I know is going to have so many voices in his ear throughout his life and they're going to be subtle and they're going to be unsubtle and they're going to be telling him your maleness is what gives you value. It makes you better than other people. It makes you entitled to do anything to anyone and get away with it. And don't worry about what your mother says. She's just a woman. And I'm lucky enough that I know my kid's going to have a father who's not going to be part of those voices. He's going to be part of fending them off. And yet I still worry. So if you go back to the original movie of Rosemary's Baby, what what if the deal with the devil hadn't happened? What if she's just had a human baby with Guy like she was planning? She's still raising the son of the kind of man who'd rent out her body to Satan without asking her mm-hmm. and do it to further his own career. And he thinks fucking her while she's passed out is an acceptable cover story. And she'd still have all these other people around her that she feels obligated to be polite to while they tell her all their opinions about what's good for her and her baby. And she'd end up a mother trying to raise a good, happy kid in a really toxic situation. And no one would fault her for loving that kid and doing her best if it weren't for the Satan thing, which we're just assuming is an inherited evil, even though other than that, it really wouldn't be that different a situation. It might be a recessive gene. (laughs) You never know. But if evil is is hereditary then her kid with guy would not have been a prince either and either way she's got this looming evil trying to use her kid and and make him part of it and she's got to decide that she's gonna do whatever she can to hold it off and i i like to believe that that's what she's trying to do at the end of the movie rather than just giving in to serving satan Although she may continue to be broken down into doing that ultimately, I believe that she wants to still just be a good mother. 
Yeah, never for a second do I see the ending as her being weak. I, I totally buy this ending just from knowing moms and just talking to moms my whole life. Like, that's her kid. Like, it sucks what happened. It's the Antichrist, but she still thinks, again, even without knowing the sequel, that's exactly what I think And when I watch the end of this movie. She still thinks that she can save him and mold him into some, maybe the kindest, gentlest Antichrist possible. So she still <laughs> thinks, you know, I might be the only chance the world has. I'm going to do my best with this kid. I think that's, I don't see her being weak at all. She just sees it as a challenge, and I'm the one who can save him. Yeah, that's how I like to see it, too. Yeah, but again, it is a very powerful ending, and there's a lot of interpretations, leads mm -hmm. to a lot of discussion. And again, this is head and shoulders a classier, more intelligent, thoughtful horror movie than most horror movies of this era or any era. And again, I know The Exorcist gets all the credit for being the big devil movie, but like to me, this is the big one. I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. I prefer this one, too. Yeah. I like The Omen as well, but like this one is, from the maternal point of view, I just think it's it's more fascinating. There's more going on in this movie. Yeah, I agree. I Yeah, The Omen's okay. I make jokes about it, but I don't find nearly as much meat to talk about in it or The Exorcist as I do in this one. And this does lead to the most important question that comes out of this movie, Fiona. Mm -hmm. Do you trust your husband not to sell you out for his career? I have had to give much thought to this, and yeah, I'm pretty sure. All right, just a lot of pressure on Matt now not to sell you out. So just, that now it's in writing, or it's in uh, on a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's recorded in some manner. Yeah, I, I, after we watched this movie last time, I'm like, I love you. And he's like, oh, you're just saying that because I didn't sell your body to Satan. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Matt says all the right things. He's like a Hallmark card. Personally, I think that guy would sell you out for a box of Pop-Tarts. Hmm, what kind of Pop-Tarts? Uh, they do have the frosting on them, so frosted cherry pops. Oh, uh, not the cherry ones. No, I'd be the strawberry ones. I'm sorry. I ruined this beautiful moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now one of the, 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 the uh, constants when Fiona comes on staff picks is I have five pages of notes. She has 75 pages of notes. So <laughs> is there anything we did not touch on in this episode, in this movie that you want to talk about? Actually, not that I can think of. I think I got to pretty much everything. And we got a really nice linear rhythm this time. Normally, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place. I mostly just let you go on this one. It was easier. <laughs> cool. I'm I'm glad to have helped. My best co-host. I, I allow them that freedom. Just go and I'll jump in wherever. I, I promise not to take away your books. That's basically what I'm trying to say. Oh, well, that's that's really what matters. <laughs> All right. Um, again, I just want people to seek out this movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, go watch it again. It's really hardcore, and it's much darker and more sinister than you think it was. It's not really a, a light movie. And if people have never seen it before, I really advise it may have come out before you were born, but this is a legit hardcore classic horror movie that really does stand up well, so I think anybody would enjoy it. Yeah, it, it really does. Do not underestimate it. Watch it while you're feeling strong, but do watch it. And if you've already watched it, check out XX. I, I really love that addendum to it. And once again, uh, give people your pen name and how they can reach you on your website if they want to read more about your more of your stuff. I'm Fiona J.R. Tichinell. You can find me at www.fjrtichinell.weebly.com. That's F-J-R-T-I-T-C-H-E-N-E-L-L -L dot W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. 
All right, thank you. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting and educated to come on and talk about them. Until then, do not trust your spouse. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? He has his father's eyes.